0: Hello and welcome to Hell is for Hyphen, it's for December 2014. I am writer, hyphen, critic, hyphen, whitewashed Egyptian, Lee Zachariah, and with me as always is...
1: Hi there, I'm uh, writer, hyphen, director, hyphen, unexpected virtue of ignorance, Paul Anthony Nelson, and our very special guest this month
2: is... Hello, I'm Richard Watts, writer, hyphen, critic, hyphen, broadcaster, hyphen, arts maven, hyphen, man about town. Beautifully done. Welcome, Richard. Thank you. Nice to be
0: here. Bon vivant. (laughs) <laughs> so the films of December 2014 there have been so many but let's start with Mr Turner, the Mike Lee film that was going to be released on Boxing Day, then got moved to February, then back to Boxing Day
1: it was actually Christmas Day in the end was it? yes, they actually went live with it on the 25th,
2: that's the day I saw it a yeah. very
1: Mike Lee Christmas, there you go <laughs> Because what's more Christmassy than a not particularly jolly fat man uh, (laughs) grimacing his way through late 19th century England?
0: Well, actually, yeah. (laughs) It's
1: like Dickens all over. It is is a bit Dickensian, yeah. It's an interesting film
0: because it's really a dream project of sorts for Mike Lee. I heard about it, you know, six, seven years before he made it and figured it was too ambitious to ever see the light of day, so I'm amazed that it's finally here. I love the fact that if there was any remaining doubt that Timothy Spall is the greatest living actor, it's now eradicated.
2: (laughs) He is superb in this film. We have
0: proof. I think the score by Gary Yershon is perfect, but the star of the film is Dick Pope's cinematography. Pope's always been a really solid Uh, cinematographer but the fact that he's able to recreate the look of Turner's paintings in the filming is something I thought should have been impossible to do and the fact that he did it is part of what makes this film so extraordinary
2: I, look, I found this fascinating. I went into it thinking, oh, it's two and a half hours. Uh, I suspect it's going to be a bit turgid. It's going to be a bit underwhelming and unengaging. And I found it enthralling. I really gravitated towards this film just because, as you say, the, the cinematography is exquisite right from the opening scene. Uh, I think set in Holland, there's windmills and, and the sun through the clouds. The film instantly says this is about painting with light. And it does that so beautifully at that moment. There were gasps from the audience at so... Some of the scenes uh, just the exquisite beauty of them and i found it fascinating because it's that wonderful combination of the grotesque and the sublime turner himself is grotesque he's this grunting sexual crude rude man a working class man who's risen to the through the echelons of the upper class through his his art and makes no attempts to to merge in with the the world he's living in so they see him as grotesque he sees them as grotesque perhaps but it's also beautifully sublime, the intensity of his love for art, the the, the way that it captures his painting, which again, can, he's spitting on paintings and scratching mm, at yeah. them. So there's, again, that the balance of that I find fascinating. Mm. He's no brute though. Like he's extremely erudite. He's able to talk with the upper class. He's
1: able to speak with them on their terms. But then, as you say, he'll hock a loogie on a painting and rubs them, you know, and he'll kind of grunt his way through certain conversations. And look, I concur on on Spall and the cinematography. I've never known Mike Lee to focus on the visuals this much. This is by far the most cinematic film Mike Lee has ever made. He's usually much more concerned with, you know, the personal dramas, but no less so here. Like, this is, this is a really great character study, and Spall is... Full force, like gets his moment to just shine, and but it's all it's the subtleties of his journey. The only thing with this film, and I love the the way it evoked the period. I love that what what it says about uh, being an artist. I just didn't think his arc was quite able to sustain the two and a half hour running time. I was after the two hour mark, I was kind of drifting off a little bit. It's kind of like he didn't seem to change terrifically much over that period. I know it sounds like a very Hollywood executive thing to say but I just kind of wanted a little bit more of, a, of, a, of an evolution in him
2: To counter that I would say that we do see a change in him but we see that change viewed through the world around him as his art goes from being fashionable to being unfashionable mm. and the way that society around him responds as the the pre-Raphaelites work is coming into, into vogue and so forth and the, the Queen's contempt and dismissal mm. of his work but you also said that he's not a brutish man. I would disagree there. He yeah, right. is a brute. He's a brute towards his wife and his daughters. Very much and so. this is, for me, the most frustrating point of the film, that it plays too much into the myth of, of greatness and of the great man and tends to overlook the women and the impact of his uh, attention or lack of attention towards the women in, in his life. Yes, we get the housekeeper. Yes, we get his lover as the film progresses. But I would have liked to see the wife and daughters rendered as more than two-dimensional harridans, which is essentially what they yeah, were. Yeah, I, th-
1: I thought that the housekeeper was an incredibly poignant figure, and I think that's one of the film's real strengths, is the fact that she's just kind of strung along and ignored and used whenever he needs her. But yeah, you're right, the wife and the daughters are treated kind of as background
2: figures. Or even comic relief at yeah. some point.
1: Besides some minor quibbles, I still think this was a very, very good film, but I just kind of felt after a while, I felt it a little bit wearying. So when I was looking at the
0: the films that are coming out in December, I thought, well, you know, there are a lot of big films. December's a big film kind of time. And we'll probably talk about Ridley Scott's epic uh, Moses story Exodus. Um, But we're not going to. uh, (laughs) Because when we were looking at the films that affected us this month, I think we all sort of agreed Paddington was one of the better ones. Uh, The adaptation of the beloved English children's tale of the bear... Uh, from Peru that gets found at a train station, uh, which I thought I dreaded it. The moment I saw the teaser poster, <laughs> I thought, Oh God, what are they going to do to this? And I do Cause you know, I love Paddington. I was you terrified. Love
1: Paddington. Really. Well,
0: exactly. <laughs> um, but it was fantastic. The director, I've totally blanked on his name, but he's the, he's the guy who did uh, bunny and the ball, which I loved. Oh, okay. But yeah, Paul he, King is the director's name. Nicely done. Um, <laughs> It's so good, and it's surprisingly faithful to the original. There are so many laugh-out-loud moments. Yeah, I really
2: love this film. Oh, it's a delight, I have to say. And it, it's not just delightful because it's a, a clever children's film with jokes for adults. And, I mean, that in itself can be a hard balance to get right sometimes. But it's a, a clever children's film with a message, but never overt. Uh, there's constant gentle references to racism. There's fears that when, after one bear moves into the neighbourhood, soon the, full, the street will be full of bears having late-night picnics. and. <laughs> um, uh, and that's counterpointed with a Polish immigrant uh, who's fled from the horrors of, of World War Two, for example. Um, and so there's this reminder that once our borders used to be open, we used to welcome refugees and now we are terrified of them and we demonise them and frighten them. Mm-hmm. So I found that really compelling. And the screenplay is just a work of art. It mm. does the... I don't know if you've heard in, in the theatre convention at Chekhov's gun, you show the gun yeah. in the first act, it must be fired in the third. This is a film in which all those elements of the screenplay, the the nods to a daughter's... the, the character of the daughter's linguistic ability, the son's mm. ability to f- take the simplest old-fashioned toy and make something new of it, the <laughs> mother's invitation at one point to say... To the dwarfs. Why don't we go exploring in the sewers? Yeah. All of these things, even a visual shot of a dinosaur in a museum. These are all tied together so successfully by the screenplay towards the end of the film. So, so it's tonally rich. It's beautifully written. Um, my only real quibble with it was that uh, Nicole Kidman's character of the uh, the evil taxidermist. Um, I didn't find her villainous enough. Right. I think it needed an actor with who could bring more menace uh, to the role. As with a lot of Nicole Kidman's performances, I found her a bit bland. Right. But on the plus side, there's a, a, a surprise appearance by Peter Capaldi, which yes. I wasn't expecting. <laughs> um, and again, he gets a, a great line, worrying that once the bears moved in, there'll be jungle music. So again, <laughs> uh, there's that, that kind of gentle restatement throughout the film. Yeah. Um, around racism around xenophobia Uh, it's a really successful Mm. film and it's rich and engaging and humorous with great sight gags and uh, a wonderful chase sequence as well so it really does have everything
0: another really good kids film uh, from this month big hero 6 the animated film that seems to combine all the best elements of pixar and marvel without actually boasting either of their logos yeah Neither, neither seems to be present, but... um.
1: Everyone comes together under Disney. Yes, all... that's true. It's one big happy
0: family. <laughs> but yeah, I really, really enjoyed this film. I thought it, it was funny and exciting. It's, it rockets along at a great pace. It's got a really solid emotional arc, fantastic callbacks, great characters. I love this almost as much as Wreck-It Ralph. It was that really big of a
1: surprise to me, yeah. I think Wreck-It Ralph hit me a bit more emotionally. This film does have some nice emotional cues but I think it never really gets beyond kind of studio script note level I don't think it kind of really digs that deep whereas whereas record Ralph those characters just feel so earned but that aside, I thought this was a blast, yeah. I think it's a real sugar rush of a film. Like, it doesn't really stay with me, and it didn't resonate in any way, but it was just so much fun. Baymax is adorable. The, 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 the little team of the superheroes all get really great moments. I like that the phrase, woman up, gets thrown around. You yeah. <laughs> know, yeah, things, little things like that. Again, between this and Frozen, you've, you've begun to see this real... A concerted effort by Disney to start addressing equality of gender and, and giving girls heroic moments and, and, and giving girls something to aspire for in these movies. So I think it's really cool. But it, it looks great. The whole vision of San Fran Tokyo, yes. um, yeah, sort of Japanese American kind of mix, and the team's racially diverse as well, which I really like. The Big Hero 6 is tons of fun. Like, it's probably the best pure Boxing Day family movie out there. Which brings us to the final part. <laughs> Of The Hobbits.
0: The Battle of the Five Armies. Or not the best Boxing Day film ever. <laughs> Maybe not, no. I, look, I am a voracious defender of The Hobbit films, as you know. And then this just... I don't know what the hell this was. This was something else entirely. I, it was... You know how they, they decided to make it, turn it from two films into three, and then they came back to do some reshoots? It feels like all the reshoots were this film, because it, it feels like it has no connection to what came beforehand. There are so many things that are just tonally wrong, and... The thing that alarmed me the most is how silly it all is. I've never had a problem with the portentous dialogue of Middle Earth because
2: Jackson always made it work, but it's so cringy in this film. That was one of my first stumbling blocks with this film, just how leaden and bad the dialogue was. And, I mean, we've got four writers here for the screenplay, so Fran Walsh, Philippa Boy, and Jackson himself, and Guillermo del Toro. So, you would think between the four of them, they could have looked at the dialogue and thought, "Wow, this is a bit off, but they didn 't and that to me is just one of the many problems that this film has. It really does feel limp, which, given that it 's an hour long battle sequence uh, with a couple of other scenes tacked on essentially uh, it should it should feel exciting, and there 's for me, there was no passion in this third part of the film and i didn't enjoy the first hobbit film but i actually did enjoy the second one and have defended it um so i went into this one with somewhat higher expectations thinking this is the film in which he brings it home pulls all the threads together makes it work no it turns out this is the film in which he drops the ball and has produced a leaden hollow flat spectacle
1: i love the first hobbit film i Didn't mind the second one, and this is just, yeah, drop the balls, the perfect phrase, and limp as... The film is almost chronically afraid of paying anything off properly. Like, every single attempt at a payoff falls flat. You forget why you care about any of these people. There is something, I mean, I don't want to spoil, but there's something the film does five minutes in that immediately pissed me off and then from that moment on it's like why spend an entire second film building something up and you're just going to let the air out of tyres as soon as the film begins and all of a sudden we're just left with these conversations that aren't really paid off and there's this entire subplot about you know greed overtaking this person and then it just kind of gets solved in a two minute
2: thing alright let's do this now and in such an unimaginative way where we see someone essentially wrestling with his conscience in such a cliched manner there's so many clichés yeah. in this film visual clichés there's as you say there's moments that should be built up that are dropped flat there are characters uh, who encounter terrible ends who we really don't care about yeah. for me the the hobbit the battle of the five armies is a really good argument as to why the hobbit film should have been Two, not three. Yeah.
1: The other thing is, if I just see more pixels fighting pixels, I'm just going to scream. Like everything, all the battles are so artificial. Like this is a series where we loved the practical, the, the, the practical, practical effects, effects in the, in the first Lord of the Rings was film. So for amazing, example. you know, they had these great orc makeup and battles and weaponry, and and the crew were so proud of the stuff that they made. And this is just shit, computerized versions of everything, just streaming into one thing and another, and it all just blurs together in a complete firestorm of tedium, anchored to characters you don't give a shit about and a story that, as you said, Lee, just gets sillier and sillier and sillier
2: and just kind of crawls up its own festering butt. And speaking of crawling and festering, uh, Tolkien fans, I think, will be A, shocked and possibly outraged at the intro- introduction of some new monsters, which uh, I was just like, What? What are they doing here? Uh, and also then from a continuity point of view, the first film establishes that trolls cannot go out into sunlight. They turn to stone. Suddenly, in this film, trolls are running around in mm. sunlight uh, with f- mini fortresses on their backs. Oh, it's, there's, there's a lack of... Intelligence applied to this film—it hasn't been scrutinised in the same way. There's a sense of let's just finish the damn thing. There is, isn't no there? No one will care. Let's just get it out there. I should say that the Everybody best decision in this trilogy
0: was Martin Freeman as Bilbo. Because Absolutely. Even in this film, he like he grounds every moment he's in. Where suddenly, like when you're feeling it's getting a too, bit too unwieldy and silly, he just brings it back to earth. And I think, yeah, he is the MVP here.
1: I feel so sorry for Richard Armitage because I think he's really great as mm. Thorin Oakenshield, and the the things the script calls for him to do in this movie, it's just like no actor could save it. Yeah. It's just
0: like... I'm, I'm hoping against hope. I know how naive this is, but I'm hoping that when viewed in
2: the context of all three at once, it, maybe I'll like it. I'm hoping, I must admit, again, as a, as a ravening Tolkien fanboy that I was as a teenager, I'm hoping that when the extended cut comes out, mm. there will be scenes that somehow flesh out some of the the weaker moment, yeah. add some more drama, add some more pathos. I'm not very optimistic of that happening, <laughs> but I'll still watch the extended edition just in case. Shit and more of it. So
1: it's December. It's, uh, it's Christmas time. The new year is almost upon us. And like all film buffs, it's time to rank things because we're all obsessive compulsive. We thought we'd sound off on our top five uh, films of 2014. Now, I don't know what our qualification is. My thing has always been films that got a paid public release of some kind in Australia this year. So, public festival screenings, cinema release, DVD, VOD,
0: whatever. So, e- even films that are being released next year, if they were released at a
1: film festival this year, yep. they if still anyone count. from the public could have seen them at a film festival yep. this year, even though they're getting a release next year, they count.
2: Who wants to go first? I'm going to go first because yeah. I haven't seen that many films this year. So uh, I've seen a grand total of 26 films. Nice. So I was thinking of uh, uh, shocking you by trying to convince you that uh, The Amazing Spider Man 2, oh, uh, no. I, Frankenstein, oh, no, uh, no. and a couple of other films are on my top five, but no. Oh,
1: no. <laughs> so in, sa- in, sadly, they're too shit to even joke yeah, about.
2: <laughs> in no uncertain, in no particular order, these are the five films that. Have stayed with me at the end of the year. So Spike Jones is her which for me is one of those films that this is what science fiction should do. Uh, It should take an idea that is not that unfamiliar to the world we live in now and extrapolate from that and go, what if? And I thought the use of technology in her was fascinating, even though the structure of the film was very generic three-act structure, as if to say to audiences, well, the ideas are out there, but look, you know how the story beats are going. But I still found it a rich, resonant, moving, intelligent film. From the UK, uh, from director Matthew Walkers, Pride nice. is one of my top five of the year. It's a simple, feel-good film, but it gets the balance of all its elements so right. It's rich, rewarding, engaging, comedic, um, a wonderful representation in a time when unionism is being demonised. It's a great example of the value and power that unions have, and it's a wonderful example of communities working together as opposed to being separated and, and fear-focused. So, again, it's a film that is an antidote to the, the, the times we live in, which are so xenophobic and self-centred.
1: i, I, uh, I, I just want to say, yeah, I saw it yesterday and I completely agree. It's possibly the most lefty movie ever made.
2: <laughs> uh, my uh, number three on my, in no particular order, list of my top five uh, Taika Watiti's What We Do in the Shadows. Oh, yes. The New Zealand mockumentary. Um, just when I thought that vampires had been done to death. This very, quite short mockumentary, I think it's only um, 75 or 80 minutes comes along, and is playful and gleeful and hilariously funny with that style of comedy that New Zealand does so well. And having seen Watiti's Boy a couple of years ago, I went into this with high hopes and I was not disappointed. Uh, Cleo Barnard's The Selfish Giant which from its very oh, yeah. opening scene kind of is just ripe with claustrophobia and a sense of impending violence it's in that great tradition of of english feel bad films um but i think it's a really successfully and nicely done film and i'm going to uh throw mike lees mr turner into the oh, mix wow. yes i only just saw it 2 days ago but as I said, I came out of that thrilled and alive, and I, despite the gender issue that I mentioned earlier, I otherwise think it's such a, a beautiful, rich, bold film. Really enjoyed it. So there's my five. Great list.
1: What We Do in the Shadows is in my top ten. It's not. It didn't quite make my top five, but it's by far the funniest comedy of the year. My top five, uh, number five, uh, would be Xavier Dolan's Tom at the Farm, which got a brief release at Acme late this year in Melbourne. It's kind of uh, Dolan does Polanski and really feeds into fears of small town bigotry and homophobia, but also creates this fascinating, almost codependent Stockholm syndrome kind of dynamic between Dolan's lead Tom and the young guy that's kind of Gently terrorizing him. It's just so redolent with atmosphere, and it's a film that really gets in your head and stays there. His other films are kind of wash over you in a wave, but this was a gut punch, and it took me a, a good week or two to kind of sort through it, but I think it's amazing. Number four is it's been elevated after a rewatch, actually, is the uh, Wes Anderson's The Grand Budapest Hotel. This is the most fun that Anderson has ever been it's so perfectly constructed and one of the greatest casts you'll ever see just having a great time Um, but it's also this beautiful elegy to a time lost you know you've got this darkness of fascism kind of looming in the background and and i don't know whether it's something about setting it in the past that sort of feels more germane to his to anderson's arch sort of style but i think his style has found its perfect expression here and this is a filmmaker a few years ago that i was kind of really tiring of, but after fantastic mr fox and moonrise kingdom and now this he just keeps getting better with every film so that's my number four uh number three is martin scorsese's the wolf of wall street which I might otherwise title Good Brokers because I think it's Goodfellas with the financial services industry. And like Goodfellas, it's a rush. It shows the worst of humanity by showing what attracts these people to this lifestyle and and this lifestyle that kind of enables them and sees them rise and sees their kind of worst aspects grossly rewarded. And it's a propulsion and a drive and an inspiration I've not seen from Scorsese in a long time, probably since uh, 99's Bringing Out the Dead. Number two is uh, The Boy King, again, Xavier Delan. This film only played at MIF, Melbourne International Film Festival this year. It comes out next year in March. The film is called Mommy, and when it comes out... I absolutely implore you to see it. It's beautiful and shattering, and it's this um, kind of strange codependent triangle between a single mother, her violent, kind of ADHD-afflicted son, and the slightly odd woman that lives across the road. And they kind of form a little makeshift family. And it's all sort of filmed in this one-to-one aspect ratio. So, like, everything Dolan does, it's formally audacious. It mixes the best of social realism, melodrama and just bold cinematic style. And my number one film of 2014 is a film that's sat there since... Well, since I saw it in December last year. It's Twelve months it's not moved, and it's because it connected with me in such an emotional but almost elemental kind of level. I think it's one of the best films about the psychology of an artist. I think it's one of the best films about you know, maybe nobody cares about what you do. You know, maybe you, and being a young, you know, sort of, oh, young, but being an emerging independent filmmaker, it really kind of speaks to me, both my hopes and my fears about producing art.
2: The film is the Coen brothers inside Lewin Davis. I think it's indicative of my focus on the performing arts this year that I haven't seen any of the films in your top five. Well, I'm ashamed <laughs> to say. I keep meaning to, but uh, this will give me something to do over the next week or so to catch up. Some of the appalling gaps in my uh, 2014 (laughs) film history. Lee, I suspect you're going to name a bunch of films that I haven't seen either. (laughs) Very likely, although I have to add...
0: On top of the caveats we made earlier, uh, that because in my blog, when I do my best films of the year, I go by international release dates, if I've seen the film in time, uh, and I forget that we do Australian release dates on hyphenates, and so I didn't even consider a lot of my favourites from last year, which only came out in Australia uh, this year, like Inside Llewyn Davis, Her, The Wolf of Wall Street, and 12 Years a Slave... So I'm not going to try and do mental calculations to figure out where they might fit in with the list I made for today. I'm just going to say that I could easily do two top fives, so just imagine they're on the list. Coming at number five is uh, a film I just saw, because I had a gap in my schedule at MIF. I almost didn't see it, but I thought, you know what, i got nothing else to do. And that's Maidan. It's a documentary Jesus. about the Ukraine uprising that is told... With almost no context. It's just a locked off camera over the course of the protests in the square against the Ukrainian president. And it's mind blowing. It's, uh, uh, the music is so haunting. The funeral marches that the people sing in the square are so haunting that me, unable to, to remember a song unless I've heard it a million times, this song six months later is still stuck in my head. <laughs> oh, wow. Number four, for reasons outlined earlier Mr. Turner. Yeah. Number three is uh, The Grand Budapest Hotel. There is a very strong argument to be made that this is Wes Anderson's best film. It's certainly the ultimate statement of his intent. Uh, The Russian nesting doll storytelling is pretty much his declaration of uh, how he sees the world and how he likes to tell stories. Number two is Force Majeure. The funny and dramatic and perfect examination of um, the modern condition and how we react primarily to nature in this uh, very constructed world. And it's just, for something so devastating, I-, I didn't expect it to be so re-watchable. Like, I was emotionally ruined by the end of it and immediately wanted to watch it again. These two things usually do not go together. <laughs> <laughs> and my number one film of the year, Xavier Dolan's Mommy. Boom which is getting a general release next year, but came out at uh, the film festival circuit this year. Dolan does, with small dramas, does more cinematically with them than most blockbuster directors. There are action films that I've seen at the cinema and going, you know what, could have seen that on DVD. What Dolan does with dramas, I think, you know what, you have to see that at the cinema. The things he does with the format are just... I've not seen anyone else do them. Uh, And that's true of Tom at the Farm as well. Um, but Mommy, for me, was the uh, most incredible experience I'd had in a cinema all year.
1: I've got some catching up to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think Mommy and Grand Budapest Hotel just won the day. <laughs> so,
0: Richard, please tell us whom have
2: you picked for your...
1: Hella's for Ivan, it's Filmmaker of
2: the Month. I've picked the American independent filmmaker Greg Araki whose work resonated with me so much when I first saw one of his films in my mid-twenties and he's a filmmaker who continues to intrigue me Excellent
0: Yes he's a a great choice I, I, I have to admit I've sort of come to him backwards where I saw his later work and only now have sort of gone backwards to see how he got to that point. So it's been a very interesting journey watching all these films. Well,
2: it's also been interesting for me because I've had a chance to fill in a couple of the gaps uh, in his filmmaking career that I hadn't uh, encountered earlier. It is unfortunate that none of us have been able to track down a copy of the never-released-on-DVD or video The Long Weekend* O Despair from 1989. Yes, yeah, his second film, still yeah. tantalisingly uh, Out of our grasp. But we have seen 10 of his 11 feature films. Films to date. So I think that gives us a a great sense of watching a a career emerge. And for me, it's fascinating to starting with Three Bewildered People in the Night from 1987, his first film, watching that and and already going, wow, there are quirks and tropes and elements of that film that are now part of perhaps his signature style.
1: Yeah, he's got the triangle structure, which happens in a lot of his films. Usually a gay guy, a straight girl, and a guy somewhere in between. He loves that dynamic. I love me a good ultra low budget black and white shot on film debut you know like following to Malinoche and 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 this is that kind of thing I just felt it a real pleasure to watch the actors are really rough but there's his voice is already there like that kind of snarky dialogue
2: and the oh, yeah, slacker dynamic it's and, all and there the, and the cynicism is mm. there as well there's a great scene where the, the female lead Alicia is editing one of her video pieces because she's a video artist and on the video she's saying I'm 25 years old and I have no idea where I'm going all mm. I is the emptiness in the void and then we hear Alicia in real time over the top just going oh god <laughs> uh, so that balance of existential pain and cynicism about said existential pain <laughs> is there right from the start which really intrigued me
0: I was wondering if uh, watching this film I was wondering if he was the first filmmaker inspired by Jim Jarmusch who only beat him by a few years because it's such a Jarmusch uh feeling to the film and they actually name checking him name check him at one
2: point which I think confirms this yeah yeah uh, it's certainly one of the fun things about watching Iraqi films is he's so film literate that there are constant references to, to filmmaking. For, for example, the fact that uh, the male character, David, is wearing an eye patch throughout the film, I wondered if it was a John Ford reference, oh, for example. Oh, wow, yeah, that um, never occurred to me. And there's also visu- uh, kind of lots of visual art uh, elements in there as well. There's certainly shades of some of Edward Hopper's paintings such as Nighthawks and uh, Automat, kind of in terms of the framing and the position and Araki is is a poet of suburbia in many ways. He both loathes and loves that Mm. urban environment. And a very Californian suburbia
1: too. There's shades of that kind of Laurie Anderson performance art sort of thing going on in there as well. And he does love to throw an Andre Bazan book in there. (laughs) I don't know how many times what his cinema shows up in his films, but it's a
0: lot. So he's one of the big sort of uh, figures in, in queer cinema, certainly one of the breakout directors and that was sort of late 80s early 90s was that was his breakout film
1: the living end 92 because that feels like. that was big... part of a sundance film festival where there were there was a lot of strong queer content it was, like and there was swoon from tom Kalin who's barely seen
2: been seen since yeah. um, and b ruby richard's essay the new queer cinema um yeah. is dating from that time so uh, and interestingly uh, we've mentioned the, the that that kind of triangle structure that mm-hmm. of his characters. The His second film, which we haven't been able to see, is I think about three couples, one gay, one straight, one lesbian couple, who right. on a weekend together kind of, of course, break up and rearrange their components yeah. and leave with, with different partners to who they arrived with. Um, and that sexual fluidity is one of the things that was so uh, significant about early queer cinema movement. It wasn't about gay characters. It was, it was about queerness and the fluidity of sexual desire and the way that sexuality and desire can't necessarily be pigeonholed into just gay or just straight, which then does make The Living End uh, his, his third film somewhat intriguing because it is very much about two gay protagonists so we're not seeing that menage a trois we're not seeing the, the sexual fluidity but we are seeing the embracing of the outsider and making them heroes in a in a really significant way and I also love the fact that again his filmmaking and student roots are, are there in the film we've, and his love of music is so yeah. pre- throughout this film so the character of John for example who is a a writer and film critic, and the kind of guy who goes into a deep depression when Echo and the Bunny Men break up. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: he does win me over a lot with his use of early REM. That was uh, that, didn't, that didn't hurt my appreciation of it. Living in seems like a clarion call of anger to me. It's the anger at at the AIDS virus and the way the uh, government, particularly the Reagan era, and then the Bush era, I guess, where this film takes place in, the Mm. original Bush, and the way the government has treated it. And this film is really responding to that. So it's this great fast and loose, ultra micro-budget Bonnie and Clyde with these HIV-positive protagonists that are just like fuck you, America, we're going to take what's ours and we're sick of being
2: marginalised. It's a fantastic queer road movie. Yes. uh, And the fact that, as you were just saying, Paul, that stuff about the Reagan era and the Bush era and the way that queers and junkies and others were were marginalised, the closing credits reference uh, the fact that we have a big White House full of Republican fuckheads. (laughs) It is a film of its time. It's so Mm -hmm. drenched in cultural references of the period. I mean, we've got bands like KMFDM playing on the soundtrack. We've got to choose death sticker uh, uh, on the car. We've got the archetypal psychopathic lesbian couple, for example, who turn up. But we've also then got a great scene in which Iraqi is having a go at some of the more mainstream filmmakers of the the American indie period. You've got three queer bashers who turn up. One is wearing a Sex, Lies and Videotape t-shirt. Another's wearing a Drugstore Cowboy t-shirt. And they get blown away in a great reversal of the the, the queer bashing trope that we often see in cinema. The other thing I love about it, as well as the, the culture references, however snarkily they may be delivered. Again, the cinematic referencing, John has a poster of the Warhol film Job" on the, mm. the back of his door, and he, he references that visually. There's a point where John comes through the door and just throws his head back and sighs in a way that del- is a deliberate visual echo of of that that image but then there's also again this celebration of the weirdness of suburbia and we see constantly throughout Iraqi's films a framing shot in which weird random people walk by somebody on a leash being led by someone else or one in a shopping trolley being pushed by another or Hmm. ranting religious types or so on so it's a very familiar landscape but one which he then twists and darkens
0: can I ask, just talking about his influences, has he ever mentioned John Waters as an influence? Because the opening of The Living End feels like it's right out of a John Waters film, that style of humour.
2: I hmm. can't answer that. I don't know if Waters has been an influence. I do know that comic books have been an influence on him. Uh, because Iraqi wrote and shot and edited his first film, so the composition is Partially influenced by his love of comic books as a, as a child and a teenager. And so the framing and the look of everything which he has created is, I'm, I'd love to see, for example, some of his shooting sketches and so on, just to, to see the images he had in his head, how they were then replicated on the screen, because I suspect they'd be very, very faithful.
1: Living End in, in particular is where his strong sense of composition really begins to announce itself. Yes. Lots of shooting upwards and lots of sort of, you know, people framed against huge blue skies. And
2: it's almost Western esque. And also, we can, it also continues his visual referencing as well. There's a, a reference to the to some of David Hockney's an queer English artists who moved to the US and became much more successful there. Mm. So uh, some of Hockney's swimming pool images, for example, of handsome young men swimming underwater, the refracted and broken image. We see that referenced in The Living mm. End as well.
0: Now, I find it weird that he has somebody <laughs> shooting a guy wearing a Sex Lies T-shirt, given how similar his next film, Totally Fucked Up, is to Soderbergh's debut, especially... Aesthetically, there are lots of characters talking directly to the camera. There's this avant-garde style. It's strange to me that he should be railing against something that feels so similar.
2: Now, this was the film that made me an Iraqi... Fan, It really was. There's a a line in it uh, from one of the characters. uh, It's from Tommy, who's the the kind of skater dude. Everything that homos are supposed to like, disco music, Joan Crawford, drag shows, I hate. And Bette Midler. God, I fucking hate Bette Midler. For for me as a queer 20-something listening to punk rock and going, what, I'm supposed to like disco and high energy dance music and oh, fuck this uh, so yeah this this film was the clarion call for me and by the time I saw this I must have been 27 or so uh, so I'm certainly older than the protagonists mm. and I'm slightly younger than Iraqi at the time I saw it but the fact that in the opening sequences we get more teen angst in 15 random fragments I was like this is a, a wonderful exploration of teen angst and his characters are so well written they're monologues to camera in, in the early parts of the film for example the the sequence when Patricia is refuting claims that she's too young to have a baby. At the same time, she's chewing in bubble gum and blowing bubbles. Mm -hmm. So there's that beautiful counterpoint of what she's saying and what she's actually doing. And he does that so well with his characters. He introduces characters really successfully in a very quick way, but in a way which makes them quite real.
1: And the possessory credit, another homo movie by Greg Araki. <laughs> As opposed
2: to The Living End, which is an irresponsible movie <laughs> by Greg Araki.
0: Speaking of the writing, he rarely gets mentioned as being part of that 90s style of affected, self-aware dialogue, you know, that Joss Whedon, Kevin Williamson, Kevin Smith, David E. Kelly style, where it's more important that people sound witty than realistic. Now, I'm not knocking that style, and he eventually loses it from his films, but it places him within a sub-movement I'd never considered him a part of before.
2: Well, the classic line of dialogue from Totally Fucked Up that encompasses that is when uh, Andy is looking at the camera, g- going, "Sometimes I think the only thing keeping us together is a mutual terror of loneliness." Oh, actually, no, that's not Andy. That's uh, one of the that's one of the couples. But yes, yeah, um, yeah it, it it's got, you can't really imagine people saying it. It <laughs> sounds good, nonetheless. This is the film that for me really. Uh, it 's where iraqi 's cinematography really starts to to mm. crystallize and and what struck me in his earlier films he 's made a value out of his lack of money so the, the the single static camera shots that make up so much of his films it 's here he starts to play with that static shot and so when the camera starts to move he starts to use that as a visual shorthand to indicate uh, potential violence so in here when one of the characters is about to get queer bashed from the static shot that set up the scene, suddenly the camera starts to move in in a predatory way. It happens again when Andy is contemplating suicide. Again, the the camera starts to move in, and it's really noticeable because so many of his shots are static. Uh, They may be intercut uh, static shots, but they are almost always static cameras, uh, particularly in these early films. So his, to make use of that lack of resources uh, to turn that into a strength is one of the things it's that intrigues fun, me. funny you mention
1: that because his early films, I mean his whole career really, but particularly his early films, feel so dynamic. And he, then you mentioned that most of the shots are static. I think that brings it to what I found most impressive about his, is his editing. Because he's edited all his films. His films run between 78 and 105 minutes. There is not a shred of fat on any of them. Most of them are around 85, 90 minutes long.
2: Ooh, I'd argue that uh, Three bewildered People in the Night could do with a bit of trimming. It feels more like a short film stretched <laughs> well, out to a yeah, feature. Yeah,
1: that could probably be a 75-minute thing. But, you know, we'll forgive him because it was his first time at bat. Absolutely. But everything, like, from sort of the living end to modern day is just so incredibly lean. And it's obviously the, ca- the cutting style that's making it feel so... Dynamic, as opposed to dynamic cinematography. Yeah, you know, he's not really throwing the camera around as much as it seems. And then the Doom Generation. Yeah, that interest in sex and violence really continues in nineteen ninety-five. Uh,
0: the Doom Generation, which was ubiquitous in video stores. Like, I only realised when I watched it the other day. I hadn't actually
2: seen it before, but I thought I had because the video was everywhere. And this is the film in which the opening credits say it's a heterosexual movie <laughs> yeah, no, by yes. Gregor Rocky. And um, this is where again that the triangle comes into yep. play again, much. more more significantly and, and it's also the teen this is the second now the, the
1: teen apocalypse trilogy
2: yes yeah. which is uh, totally fucked up this and we'll get to the next one get to the next one this is a film which I know a lot of people find difficult and the irony becomes too over the top for some people and the language that we've talked about the female lead I mean I love her inventive swearing in this it, <laughs> it's kind of like jism breath as an insult <laughs> there's nonetheless for me a sense of life in this film and it's his most ambitious film to date. It's certainly the the film in which uh, he had French funding to make this film, and it looks so much more lush visually. But, again, his composition is exquisite, and whether that's composition of a severed head sitting atop nachos talking, for example, or some of the hallucinogenic hotel rooms that the characters Mm. are are sleeping in, because, again, this is also a road movie in which our straight couple are joined by a character who is... Well, he's referencing a character from *The Living End*. He's he's a bit of a loner. He's a bit of a psycho. He's the the freeing influence on our uh, our heterosexual couple who begins to lead them down a, a towards a path of polymorphous perversity.
1: <laughs> and they're all and their surnames are red, white, and blue, which is a uh, comment on. The modern American teen, if you will. I did find this difficult at times. It's an incredibly abrasive film.
2: And that- it's an incredibly excessive film. Yeah. And for me, that excess is a commentary on American capitalist culture of the period he's almost throwing that excess in the audience's face saying this is the world you are part of and comes to a pretty chilling conclusion too yeah and, and that conclusion comes at a point again which is referenced again by the moving of the camera because this is again a film where there's so many static shots again rapid editing and so forth and often those shots include a, a classic Iraqi trope of a young man lying on a bed with his head hanging over <laughs> <under> the edge <laughs> does love kind that. of with his arms behind his back which in the living end is used perhaps as a reference to uh, the world being kind of out of kilter and people being kind of at odds or looking at the world upside down. Mm. But here the characters have committed murder. There's been all kinds of gross excess. Suddenly they hit a dog and that's when the film becomes emotional and just after they hit the dog, the camera pans slowly across the road. And again, it's the movement saying, "And now things are getting serious." Well, let let me take you towards the dark place.
1: Yeah, this this film, more than any other, reminds it. This feels like Gregorakis, wild at heart. That was the film that just kept jumping out at me the whole time. in it's sort of its aggressive application of style and and its characters on a road movie to hell. And Wild at Heart has always been a, a difficult Lynch film for me to kind of get through all the way as well because it's sort of the first half's really great, and then it sort of becomes. But it does that same thing with the. Um, there's that point where they get into a road accident and Wild at Heart, and they meet the Sherilyn Fenn character and then from then everything turns dark. And this does something very similar with the dog moment, as you mentioned.
2: It yeah. seems very influenced by Wild at Heart. In terms of influence, it's also where we see, again, Iraqi's uh, love of cinematic language coming into play. There's a scene late in the piece where our characters are... The, the threesome is becoming much stronger. And there's a scene where Jordan says, Do you ever wonder why we exist? And as he says that, he's shot... It's a, it's a very low shot. Uh, so, and half of the screen is dark sky which perhaps represents freedom. The other half of the screen is a classically film noir-esque kind of building uh, of shadows and angles. And the character almost seems kind of, is he going to be pulled one way or the other? And of course he walks into the shadows and we know that something horrible is going to happen.
0: So, that trilogy of 90s teen apocalypse films is rounded out with nowhere.
2: This is my least favourite of Iraqi's films because it feels the least focused and the most self indulgent. Yeah. Um, again, pretty silly. It's, it's a very kind of lean running time, which I think in this instance is a, is a benefit to the mm-hmm. film. And it strikes me as a film in which perhaps the excess of American culture that Iraqi had been commented on has suddenly become an issue for him personally. I'm not suggesting he was yeah. coked off his during the entire movie but it kind of has the sense that he was and and I think that is then reflected in in a lack of control in the film because his films have been very well controlled up to this date but for example there's a rape sequence in nowhere which comes out of left field which feels really ugly and jarring and there's a whole lot of disparate elements to this film that jar it doesn't feel like a cohesive focused whole.
1: Yeah, it is a muddle. I still think it's, there's a lot of fun to be had with it. I think it's unique in its insanity. And it's definitely still his point of view. But yeah, there is definitely a kind of a lack of focus to it.
0: I have to admit, I did kind of love
1: 99 Splendor. See, that's my least favourite. I thought it was almost terrible.
0: Yeah, I thought that too when it started, but I liked that it was the Iraqi version of a traditional rom-com. You know, a woman in love with two men, and the three of them in a successfully polygamous relationship, and the two men having to win her back when a third man comes along. The tone is all over the shop, but I do enjoy watching him make fun of the rom-com tropes.
1: I think it becomes better as it goes along, and I think it does seem like more like it's making fun. I think early on it just feels like he's
2: going at it way too heavy-handedly. Whereas I have the, the opposite response. I thought it starts well and then becomes very bland <laughs> by the end. But again, there's there's a lot I like about Splendour. It's certainly his most commercial film to date at, at that point in 1999. But it's also his first female protagonist. Mm. My understanding is he was actually going out with Kathleen Robertson at the time. Mm. Uh, so this is a love letter to her as an actor as well as to the romantic figure in his life. And it's shot very differently as well. Everything yeah. I've said about kind of framing and static camera Suddenly goes out the window here. This is Iraqi making a, a more commercial film. But it's still got his his tropes, it's got threesomes, it's got drugs, it's got cool bands, but it feels like a, a gentler, less cynical Iraqi, it, essentially it feels like a man who's in love. But for me, I love the dynamic of the threesome, and it's only then when a another love influence comes into the film, about halfway through it, that to me the film loses its way and loses its edge, and then it becomes way more commercial and, and much, much blander.
0: So the first film of his I ever saw was Mysterious Skin in 2004, and seeing it again in the context of his career, I'm amazed at what a huge step up it is. Like I love what came before, but Mysterious Skin is something else entirely. This is an absolute
2: masterpiece of a drama. And it's his first real drama because he's had moments of drama in his other Mm. films, but they've been counterbalanced with comedy and satire. And it's interesting for a filmmaker who'd always been so prolific too, that this was a five-year period.
1: With no features. There's only a 2000 TV pilot. This is how the world ends. I don't know whether this time has kind of forced him to sharpen his skills or he's dev- matured or what. But there is just, as you say, there is this quantum leap in assuredness.
0: I think it's the weight of the text. This is a story about two kids who were molested, and as the film's tagline goes, one of them can't remember and the other can't forget. And it's got Joseph Gordon-Levitt giving this amazing performance as a teenage hustler.
1: It was kind of his breakout role after Third Rock from the Sun, wasn't it? It was kind of his first... Levitt is amazing in this, and... I think Brady Corbett's pretty great. Yeah, yeah,
0: he really is. But the way Iraqi handles the quite complex and difficult emotion and the brutality is outstanding. He's so gentle, but he never holds back from the reality of what's happening. This
2: is such a, uh, a really sophisticated film, yeah. and, and this is the the first time that, that Iraqi has made a film that he didn't write the original story himself, so it is based on a novel, though he did write the screenplay. Although it feels so different to his earlier films to date, um, it still again has those trademark elements, again the static camera versus the, the, the movement to show danger when the very first time that the young Neil walks into the coach's house we've seen him at the baseball game and suddenly the camera is following him as he moves around the baseball pitch he's caught the coach's eye coach invites him back to his house the camera moves subtly aside as he enters the house almost as if it's looking away from what is about to happen again that referencing of uh, the character lying on the bed looking at the world upside down we see that again we also see that reinforced in a later scene where Neil is in the park on a swing set, so he's an almost adult, certainly a child, a teenager by that point, who's had adult experiences he, he should not have experienced. He's upside down, again, looking at the world, a kilter. The scene, for me, that is the most, perhaps the most heartbreaking. There are some violent and terrible scenes in this film. But this, the scene that always makes me cry is when uh, Neil is hustling in New York and this man walks out of the darkness, lighting a cigarette. Oh, and yeah. it, it's this almost satanic looking figure emerging from the darkness, wreathed in smoke and flame, who then turns out to be a sympathetic figure who just wants to be held. And he's covered in Kaposi's sarcoma. This is such a, a human scene. And and then, of course, it's foreshadowing another scene to come with another, another John uh, picked up by Neil, which just goes horribly, horribly wrong.
1: Completely agree. This is, for me, absolutely his masterpiece. But, yeah, there's a sensitivity that we haven't seen from him. You know, it's like, like this could have, like, it's easy to look back in retrospective now and go, well, he applied all this care to it. But that wasn't necessarily evident from his skill set. This could have easily been a botch job but the fact that he does it so beautifully and so with consummate skill is a huge credit to him as a filmmaker and and i
2: think a lot of the
1: culture probably underestimated him at this point i, I think so because he had this, this
2: reputation for doing these quirky cheap not in, in terms of budget but also in terms of uh what he was striving for yeah, kind of films. in and your then,
1: face, bit of shock value you yeah know, and, and then
2: like, suddenly this film comes along i mean it's got an exquisite score uh harold yes. Martin, robin guthrie's uh, score is wonderful iraqi's use of music is great and film as well. He knows when not to use music. Mm. So it's some of the most potent dramatic moment there is silence except for what we're hearing uh, from the characters themselves the performances are amazing they really really are Brady Corbett and Joseph Gordon Levitt um, what he, he draws from mm. them particularly in the very final scenes of the film yeah. when one character is talking about being used as bait to, to attract the other it destroys me every time I see it it's the, a masterpiece the
1: kids are heartbreaking God place the coach is really
0: great too yeah, yeah. and it's weird because he sort of goes ...goes back to that original style for Smiley Face in 2007... Which is, I think, the first film he didn't write. It's the that? only film to It's the, the only film, yeah. And, yeah. A stoner comedy with Anna Faris.
2: I've already said that I think uh, Nowhere is perhaps my least favourite film, but Smiley Face to me is Iraqi's least successful film. Really? Um, I, I found this a chore to get through. I'd not seen it before. Uh, so I've only watched this a, a couple of days ago. And it, I think a lot of its problem is the screenplay. I just find the screenplay really limp and the the characters dull, the situations which should be kind of rich just feel a little bit bland to me.
1: See, I felt the screenplay lose lost power as it went along, but I thought it started really strong. Like, I thought it started on this theme of the le- seeing the letters and I thought that was going and to then be drops a thing. that. Yeah, and that's the thing. For the first half of the film, I thought, wow, this is really well constructed. And because Iraqi stuff is normally quite languid in the way it sort of goes about things, it was like a nice change to see, you know, this kind of really interesting structure and then they throw a lot of it out the window and it does kind of fall apart a bit towards the end but i did find this a lot of fun and it's mainly how game anna faris is
0: when have we ever seen a woman as the lead in a stoner comedy exactly that's like i can't think of another example which is great in itself but what i liked about this film is that it does something that other stoner comedies don't do like most stoner comedies uh make taking drugs look like this wacky adventure And Smiley Face does that too, but it also shows the consequences at the same time. So it's not glorifying them, and you feel embarrassed for her a lot of the time. Like, it's excruciating to see her behaviour at times, but it's still really funny. And in that regard, I think it's like the most honest drug comedy ever made.
2: Can I I just say, I don't remember laughing once while watching this film. Um, And it's perhaps partly because the stoner comedy genre is not one that I enjoy, despite having been a huge pothead in my youth. I just found this... Dull and plodding. I really do. Although, absolutely, look, yeah, Anna Faris is absolutely committed to the role, one hundred percent. But also, what f- struck me about this film was that Iraqi's music references are starting to sound dated in this film. It's a contemporary film, but he's still drawing upon kind of some of the bands he loves from the past. Well, part. he used to be
0: a music journalist, and he's definitely rooted in that eighties and nineties. Tradition of bands like My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult and Coil. Like a lot of really interesting stuff, but he's not really moving with the times.
2: He hasn't kept up with the times yeah. musically with this film. So, yeah, it, it feels a little bit for me like going through the motions. Wow.
1: Yeah, a lot more fun than that. But I and I don't normally like stoner comedies. I just felt this felt a lot more like a screwball comedy to me. And then two thousand and ten's Kaboom, a very
2: strange but fun film. And this is such a queer film. Oh, it's, it, it, it really, really it's a is a sexy
1: queer fun Donnie Darko.
2: Yeah, <laughs> um, and it's quintessentially Iraqi. Yeah. I mean, we've got animal masked men, we've got (laughs) a witch, an actual witch, we've got body (laughs) snatching, we've got a sexually fluid uh, male lead. We've got the reappearance of James Duvall, who we haven't seen in Iraqis films for a while. We've got Dreams. We've got kind of great use of music. Suddenly the music in this feels much fresher. Yeah. We've got references to bands like Explosions in the Sky and, and the like. And it's just, it's a romp. I love this it. This is a romp. It absolutely is. And, and there's a focus to it that Nowhere doesn't have. Yeah, this to me really feels tight. like uh, Iraqi essentially trying to redo Nowhere, but in a much more focused and controlled way. And there is a real sense of control in this film.
1: And pretty. It and
2: looks awesome. It looks like, great. And yeah. Great performance. Performances, and it builds to kind of like it's such a rush. Yeah, this could have been part of the teen apocalypse trilogy. <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, although I must admit, kind of having a, a, a qualm or two watching it uh, at my mum's place, she walked into the room just as the uh, hunky roommate Thor was trying to give himself a blowjob. And, <laughs> and I was kind of like, suddenly I felt like a teenager being caught watching porn. <laughs> Now, the three of us
0: took a joyride the other day. We took a flight from Melbourne's Tullamarine Airport to Melbourne's Avalon Airport, and weirdly enough, there was a 90-minute stopover in Los Angeles. And during that time, we decided to watch a film that hasn't been released in Australia yet, but is out in America, White Bird in a Blizzard, his most recent film.
2: And boy, my arms are tired. This is Iraqi going, trying to recapture the magic of mysterious skin exactly it's that filmmaker it's the iraqi who made mysterious skin coming back for another uh, serious drama and once again based on a novel by an existing writer mm. which he's adapted and made some significant changes to the the female lead for example in the novel is just a kind of slightly dorky outsider teen here she's like no she's cool and into alternative music and hangs out in kind of cool, grungy clubs with her kind of punk friends and so forth. And it's moved from, I think, Ohio uh, or somewhere in the Midwest to L.A. California. and California yeah. again. So it 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 definitely feels like an Iraqi film, but it's, for me, not as successful as Mysterious yeah. Skin.
0: I still really enjoyed it. I think it's a really solid, interesting drama. And i, I got to say, I love Eva Green and having suffered through so many bad films recently that have wasted her. Seeing her do a 1940s melodrama voice like she's uh, Betty Davis or Joan
1: Crawford or someone, that I love. She was actually pretty terrific in this film, and Chris Maloney is as well. I just, yeah, I think solid's the word, though. I found it really professionally done. You know, I couldn't really fault the actual craft of but the it thing. But it feels a little stilted. It's real bland. I just yeah. found it bland. Like, it all just kind of bounced off me. I wasn't interested in anything that particularly happened to anybody. I just kind of got through to the end and was like, okay, that was a film.
2: It feels a little bit like an exercise in nostalgia for mm. me. Araki, it, it's a period feature. Iraqi has very deliberately gone back to make a film set in 1988, around the yeah. time he was first making films. So it covers 88 to 90 to 91, I think. Mm. It just felt, because he was striving so much to recapture that period it feels like it's lost a little bit of in urgency. I mean there are some intriguing moments in there, there's some great misdirection in terms of the narrative there are some classic Iraqi uncomfortable truths and classic shots as well. There's a scene that to me just screams Iraqi and it's a very quiet one is after the father and daughter have visited the police station we just get this kind of static shot, shot from low down sky building car and then they suddenly walk into the frame towards Mm. the car and it just, that scene it just looks like a Gregoraki scene. It's an intriguing film, uh, and I think the fault is partially in the screenplay rather than the direction. Mm. It just feels, again, the use of voiceover and and other elements, it just feels a little stilted, uh, a a little too subdued, and consequently the film, despite great performances, does not quite come to life. But it'll be interesting to see where he goes next because he's still got a bunch of
1: films in development. He's still making them. He's got a lot coming up. And he's always Uh, been fiercely independent. Like, he's always... doesn't seem to be any... I mean, I don't know, maybe the studios wouldn't touch him with a hot tent, but it's a good kind of mutually beneficial relationship, I think. You know, he writes, produces, directs and edits all his films, um, with very few exceptions. He's sort of kept that where a lot of his colleagues from the time have either disappeared or moved into the the mainstream. He's really
2: forwards this great independent spirit for the last 25 years, and I can't wait to see what he does next. Look, I absolutely agree. He's a defiantly independent filmmaker whose love of outsiders has become the centrepiece of his his narrative voice, Mm. Uh, and it's perhaps because of that outsider status that he has remained outside the system. But again, despite some hits and misses throughout his career, he has made, for me, three really significant films personally, but also certainly, look, Mysterious Skin, we all agree, is a masterpiece – Rewatching Totally Fucked Up and The Living End, I also think those are both really significant uh, films, not just for. The, the, the genre of queer filmmaking, if it is a genre, but what they say historically uh, mm-hmm. about that period as well and just the way they're made and particularly totally fucked up. It remains a favourite. It was such a delight to, to be able to rewatch it again for this and literally at one point jumping up, almost jumping up and down at my seat with glee when that audacious title suddenly flashes up on the screen, start narrative here. <laughs> Brilliant. Richard, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure, and uh, I'm glad I got to introduce you guys to some Iraqi films you had not seen. <laughs> very much appreciated, and we'll see the rest of you next year.
1: Clang, clang, clang with the trolley. Ding, ding, ding with the bell.